All right, we're live. Okay. <laughs> we're we're back together, but this time in person, not on a call. Not on a call. We both have we're on the same microphone, so hopefully you'll sound It'll, sound good. <laughs> and we're on Drew's microphone, which sounds a lot better. And uh, yeah, together in person and uh, picking up this uh, Old Testament plot line specifically through Genesis, so we got to cover Genesis 1 through 11, mm-hmm. last conversation, and uh, just some of the things that we pointed out along the way. Uh, you know, Genesis 1 through 11, answering really high level, big questions about humanity. Where did we come from, and why are things the way that they are? Which makes you think about the office. Why are you the way that you are? Why are we the way that we are? So we, we saw a lot of that 20 plus generations that we covered in all of that creation, fall, flood, um, and then the Tower of Babel. And so anything from there, Drew? Again, just to remind you, Drew is one of my good friends. Moved to Dallas, Fort Worth area. I'm including Fort Worth. He really lives in Dallas. But uh, from Fayetteville, was a church planner for years at a church called the Hill Church in Fayetteville. But now serving with Right Now Media, doing great work uh, for them. And so I'm borrowing his uh, wisdom, uh, expertise and fun uh, to this conversation. So, Drew, anything from last time that you want to recap or bring back in? Uh, yeah, I will say that uh, I didn't feel like I lived in Texas till I went to Fort Worth. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> Dallas is Dallas is Dallas. It's fine, but you know, it doesn't it doesn't have the the cultural feel that Fort Worth does. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much from the first eleven chapters. I mean, Genesis is fifty chapters, so it seems weird to say the halfway mark is chapter 11, mm-hmm. but you're looking at so many years of human history and such incredibly huge events, you know, with the creation of everything and then the fall and corruption of all mankind and then how that plays out through the flood and the tower of Babel when everyone's scattered across the earth. Um, it, it really, just like you said, the, the big thing is why are things the way that they are? And this is why, um, this is why there's corruption in individuals. This is why there's corruption in societies. This is why, uh, war is a constant, um, part of life Mm -hmm. for humanity, if not for us here in the United States and for a lot of people across the world. Um, but even amidst all of that, you have the promise of God in Genesis three, um, where he is going to send someone to defeat the work of the serpent. Mm-hmm. Um, that proto-euangelion, that first good news, where even, you know, like Noah's father, when Noah's father looks at him, he says, maybe this is the one who's going to take away our toil from work. And there's all this hope in those first 11 chapters. And so instead of the first 11 chapters where we're looking at all of humanity and a couple specific individuals here in chapter 12, the story really laser focuses on one family and says, okay, God sees that the world is broken and corrupt and sinful. And he decides to redeem the world through a single family and starts with a single man named Abram. Yeah. And so that's where we're going to pick up just for fun. I mean, the, the amazing thing from one to 11 was that we saw, this is why the world is the way that it is, but also why we know that it's not going to always be that way because mm-hmm. you get that first promise of the gospel. And then, yeah, we zero in on this one family and on this one man named Abram. And so Abram has a, a very old school Sunday school song written about him, Father Abraham, 
many sons yeah. had Father Abraham. Um, but uh, the the funny thing about that song is that he it took him a long, long time to have any kids at all, right? So he's the father of many nations, but really, when God zeroes in on him, we just kind of are taken through this, uh, through a gen- genealogy, and then it says, we, we get, you know, Abram enters the story, and he's kind of just the, the son of somebody else, and they live in this certain place, and then all of a sudden, Genesis 12 picks up and says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then, you know, verse 4, so Abram went is the next the next words, which is yeah. a, it wrapped up in that is so much. But, you know, let's talk about what uh, who, who Abram is. He's, you know, he's a descendant from Noah. We see that. But then he's just this guy living in a land, and God speaks to him. Yeah, living in Ur. And when God speaks to him, it's interesting that the repeated things, what he says, go away from. It's go away from your country, okay, the place that I know, the culture that I know. Mm -hmm. And it says go away from your people and go away from your father's house. And so, you know, if someone said, hey, you need to move out of the country, I'd be like, all right, who's with me? Nobody. By yourself. Yeah, can I... Can I at least take my brother? No. Like, you need to go out on your own. It's a, it is a terrifying and huge call. And so for the next statement to be, and he did it, is pretty profound. It's not, you know, he waited a little while. He prayed again to make sure God was like, like he really actually heard what God said and didn't just have like a weird meal and was making up stuff in his head. But he went. Yeah. He left. And um Ur is to the east of where God's calling him. And he's traveling across deserts and wildernesses and wastelands. It's not comfortable travel. It's not easy travel. He doesn't know. God hasn't even told him where he's going at this point. He's just like, hey, go to the place that I'm going to show you. And it's just like, yeah, okay, yeah, great. I, I'm only seeing pretty bad places. <laughs> what are you, what are you going to show me? Where where we where we uh, this is a, kid, a little kid thing. Are we there yet? And my daughter yeah. actually started doing that recently, and it's like it's like an endless. You know, are we there yet? And so where does that come from? I don't like. Do they even have to be taught that question? I don't think so. I actually was wondering as she was doing. I was like, I didn't tell her to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, where where did this come from? Is this from the fall? You know, like is this somehow <laughs> related to that? Um, but because uh, it you know it's pretty incessant when they ask. Um, but yeah, it is amazing because if even now if somebody's going to be an expat, you. Hey, move to Kazakhstan. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that would be a biz- big, big ask. You know, today. Yeah. But uh, you still have the technology of connection and inner, inner, you know, relatedness with people, and it's a global world, right? And so, even but back then, it's it's like, dude, that that was almost a death sentence. Just like, hey, go out and take nothing with you. Just go where I'm telling you to go, and uh, and so that's why Abram is. Uh, you see him show up in. Uh, the book of Romans as like this faith that was yeah. what God was. He, he was righteous through faith because he was acting in faith, believing God's promises even then. Um, and and you we track with him uh, throughout this story for a lot of, for several chapters. And what's fascinating is just the way that God's hand is upon him. Like 
even whenever there's a conflict between him and Lot, one of the things that was so fascinating to me to see is just like um, where he gives Lot the choice of like, you can go that way or that way. I'll just go the other direction. But for for Abram, because God's hand was on him, it didn't really matter if he went to the right or left. Wherever he went, there was going to be blessing there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was this blessing that God promised to him that if you just look at what it was, um, uh, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And you see the different components of the Abrahamic covenant show up in chapters 13 and then 15 and then 17. Um, But those are the big three. There's going to be a land that I'm going to get to you. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to bless you and the whole world is going to be blessed through you. And I, uh, there, there's someone who is going to come from you called the seed. There, right. Someone from your family is eventually going to come and be a blessing to the whole world and to all the nations. Um, and those are the three things that he's holding on to as he's traveling. And from 12, chapters 12 uh, to about 15 or 16, is he's on the road. And crazy things happen. Like, he he encounters kings and you, you start to see, so what you see with all with Abraham and what all of these guys who are called the patriarchs is they're men of faith, but also they're really flawed people. Like you read through Genesis and you have God's like chosen person doing some pretty questionable and sinful things. And it's easy to look at them and just be like, this is messed up. This is, uh, this is a terrible choice. Like when Abram encounters a king and Abram's wife, Sarah, is really beautiful. And so Abram's like, shoot, they're going to want to marry my wife. Uh, and if I say I'm married to her, they're going to kill me. So you know <laughs> what, Sarah, as long as we're in this country, you and me, we're not, we're not together. You're my sister. All right. He does that twice. <laughs> twice. And yeah. both times the king is like, dude, what are you doing? Why did you lie to me? <laughs> You know what? Here, take some gold and keep going on your way. And like provides for him. But he, he lies about being married twice. He uh, he does get in a pretty serious argument with his nephew Lot and then lets Lot pick out some good land for himself. And Abram just kind of wanders off. Um, chapter 14 is a crazy chapter. Like, I think we skip over that a bunch. But there is a war but like with five kings on one side and four on another and they're fighting through tar pits like it's insane mm-hmm. like so Abram is is dealing with a lot of problems some that he makes for himself some that come across him he's fighting wars but he's holding on to that blessing of you know God's going to bless me and the whole world through me there's going to be a land there's going to be a nation there's going to be a descendant that redeems the world. Yeah, yeah, and we we were joking beforehand about uh, th- this trope, and turns out trope doesn't mean what I thought it meant. Uh, <laughs> what I really mean is theme. I was looking for a fancy word for theme, uh, and trope is not that word. So, uh, but this theme of uh, just broken people uh, and God's promise working its way through these broken heroes, so to speak. And what you find out through all of it is that ultimately God is the hero yeah. of this story because of the people are so are so broken and doing things. 
and this whole like my wife is my sister thing runs in their family because Isaac does it later, right? Yeah. And he's like, my dad did this once. You know, let me see if I can play this card. She's just my sister, y'all. And um, but there's something fascinating in the blessing, right? Because it's not just hey, uh, God looks at the world and it's like, you know what? I'm just gonna make it good for Abram. Uh, God is still working out his rescue plan, not just for a family, but through a family, mm-hmm. right? And so you see that in Galatians uh, 6, or Galatians 3, Drew pointed this out earlier, just this, uh, you know, Paul's writing about this story, and he's talking about um, how faith is the basis of our um, righteousness. And, and so... Uh, in verse 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Uh, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just think it's amazing because it, what Paul said is that the, he got the gospel preached to him. Yeah. And so, uh, again, we just want to see this as one inter- one long interconnected story. And so the gospel of Jesus was there being preached to Abraham saying all the nations, how are all the nations going to be blessed through Abraham? It's not, there's, there's got to, when, when, this is why I've heard it said that Jesus is, um, the New Testament is the answer key and the algorithm that helps you to understand the Old Testament. And so mm-hmm. when you see that Jesus, oh, you're like, oh, of course, through him, now everybody is invited to be reconciled to God. Uh, all the nations are welcomed. And you see a multinational um, uh, worshiping community in Revelation yeah. that is restored. And But that all comes from right here, you know, uh, from that covenant, the promise he made to Abram. Right. And so we can see that because we're on this side of Jesus. Abram, you know, in Genesis 15 is outside looking at the stars and God says, hey, I'm going to give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky and, you know, grains of sand on the beach. And I'm going to bless you. And Genesis says, Abraham believed, and God considers that righteousness to him. So Uh God imputes a righteousness to him because of his faith. Um, And then you even see when God makes this covenant, it's not just like a verbal contract uh, with Abram, but Abram falls asleep. And when he gets up, he sees God going through what would have been a covenant ceremony at the time where you would have these animal sacrifices and you would carry a censer, like a big, uh, uh, it's like a metal bowl that you would have some fire or incense and you carry that through. And when Abraham wakes up, he sees that going through the middle of these sacrifices. Um, and it can be a weird story where you're, eating, you're like, I don't really know what's going on here. <laughs> but what's happening is God is making a covenant with himself to Abram where he's saying this covenant is not contingent on Abram's behavior and Abram following through perfectly and his descendants following through perfectly. This covenant that I am going to redeem the world, I'm making it with myself. So it's based on my own character. And we know that there's no deceit or anything contrary in God. He cannot lie. Um, You know, we even see this in the New Testament because God is uh, faithful Uh, He remains faithful even when we're faithless. Mm -hmm. And you see this even established so early in the Bible where it's not just like, ah, this is some New Testament idea. This is something God's been doing since the very beginning when he said, here's my plan Mm -hmm. for how I'm going to redeem the world and restore it from this curse. Um, Yeah, the unilateral 
the unilateral covenant, one-sided God saying, I'm making this happen. Yeah. And uh, I honestly think Abram, because at the time, descendants, that was like the currency of the day. It's like you're rich if you yeah. have a lot of people who are related to you. Um, because, again, having people in your family makes you safer, better off. Um, and uh, But I think that Abram, I wonder just on the other side of eternity, when they, he looks back and he's like, I had no idea. I had no idea how glorious yeah. that promise that that guy was making to me really was in that moment. You know, looking up at those stars and it's like, because there was no like ambient light that was going to like, you know, drown out the star. He's probably like looking at the Milky Way galaxy and just like, that's a lot of descendants, you know? Yeah. This seems like a really big promise, but this is a really big God. And, uh, and so, well, you, yeah, and it's obvious that he didn't know and he was anxious about how it was going <laughs> to get done. And so was his wife, whose name was Sarai at the time, because in chapter 16, the next chapter, right after that covenant, uh, his wife is like, Hey, you're really old. I'm really old. I'm not about to have any kids. So if you want to like start this descendants, as many as the stars in the sky <laughs> thing, like you need to go sleep with my servant, Hagar. And you like she's the one that you're gonna have to figure this out with, and so you can see even in them there's this like questioning of how is this gonna happen. God says this is gonna happen, but honestly, we're just gonna have to make it happen. Mindset, and you see, so Hagar, her son is Ishmael, and it causes all this strife in this family um, when Ishmael is born. Um, and this chaos and God cares for for Hagar. You know, there's a story of when uh, Sarai sends her out into the wilderness just to get rid of her and essentially kill her and her son. God comes to Hagar and she calls him El Ray, the God who sees me. Um, and he cares for them. But he's, God is still intent on his plan being followed through. And so he goes to Sarai and he says, look, actually, you're going to have the baby. And Sarah laughs. Or Sarai laughs, and he goes, cool. So your name is now Sarah, which means she laughs. <laughs> so, like, you're laughing because you don't believe me? Well, you're going to laugh because there's going to be joy from the child. Mm-hmm. And uh, she gets pregnant in elderly years and has Jacob. Or Isaac. Yeah. I, has Isaac. Uh, gosh. Well, it, and the thing that's, like, people might try to say, oh, well, they lived longer back then, so being 100 years old and having a kid wasn't that big of a deal. But the scriptures themselves are like, they're, they were as good as dead. They yeah. were like, it, I mean, it is still, can you imagine, like, great-grandparent folks having, like, holding a newborn, and it's like, oh, is your grandbaby, great-grandbaby? And it's like, no, she just had him last week, you know, and be like, like, oh, my goodness. Imagine your grandmom, imagine your grandmom coming to Thanksgiving and being like, so I'm pregnant. (laughs) You used to be like, what? This ain't happening. Something's different here. This is not right. (laughs) Um, And that's why, I mean, the song about Abraham having, you know, is so many kids is, it's he goes from Abram to Abraham, and you're right that in those moments where God was making these big promises, it would have to be a really big God to be able to to follow through on that because it naturally was not going to happen. And it is it's so like clear how it's like oh I mean I think a lot of times in our lives it's like hey God wants this to happen so I'm just going to kind of help him out you know right. let me kind of prime the pump here God. Uh, to get this done because it seems like you might be either distracted or busy he's or slow, yeah he's not really thinking this through <laughs> yeah uh, okay well I'm gonna, gonna just do it myself you right. know and that never goes well not ever 
And uh, but he doesn't remove. It's not like okay, well, I'll find a new Abraham. He's like, I'm still going to press this story, mm-hmm. promise through this family, and I'm going to do good to Hagar and Ishmael. Like that is that is. I feel like that's like the kindness of God, just yeah. so much wrapped up in that moment. Brokenness of this people. I'm still my promise is still true. Uh, you know, these people in a really destitute moment. Hey, I'm still going to reach you here and bless you uh, in that space. So. Um, something interesting about this story is. Uh, Muslims also look to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as the patriarchs of their faith as well. Um, except they believe that Isaac was the son of Hagar, the one who's cast out, and Ishmael was the son of promise. And so there is that switch with them, but they would still look at this story and be like, yes, God is moving here, but God chose Ishmael. Yeah. Um, and so um, if you have any Muslim friends or um, are talking this through, they will focus more so on Ishmael than on Isaac. Yeah, which is so, I mean, crazy that these two faiths still come back to this one dude out in the middle of nowhere. And it's like, who was his wife? And, and Drew and I were talking about this too, uh, just for anybody listening, that, uh, we, and we were talking about this, that uh, I think it's fascinating how uh, his attempt to you know push forward the promise of God through another uh, woman, like not with his wife, Sarah was, was ultimately rejected. God said, that's not how it's going to happen. And so the question is, is who, not just as Abraham, but who's Abraham and Sarah together. And God blesses their, this couple and and it's like through them that the promise is going to go, you know, it's the Abrahamic covenant, but it's almost to me like, I think it should be like the Abrahamic and Sarah covenant. Uh, because it's happening together to them. Now, God speaks the promise to Abraham, but it's like Sarah is so intimately involved in that, and and which can take us to this next point of Isaac, which Isaac we see we know you know it's just not talked about as much, right? And his his role in the story is is like he's you know it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's kind of like the middle you know in the middle of the bunch. Um, and so two notable things about him. One is that he doesn't get killed by his dad, right? Which you're like, Hey, this should be like a no brainer, right? You waited like, you know, a quarter of a century to have this kid. And then God tells Abram, uh, Abraham now, um, okay, uh, go kill him. Well, and, and thinking through what Abraham's response was when he left Ur, his response, when God says, Hey, you need to take your son up onto the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. It, the next line is he saddled up his donkey and set out. Like yeah. He did it. And even though you see repeated faithlessness from Abraham, there's still that desire to go and follow God, even in difficult situations. And talking about types or repeated themes, uh, with Isaac, you see the son of promise who submits to his father, goes up on a mountain carrying the wood of sacrifice on his back, and lays himself down. Uh, now we know with Isaac that there was a ram. There was that God made a provision to step in. But with Christ, you have the Son of God who is submitting himself to the Father, who is going up onto the mountain, carrying the wood of sacrifice on his back. But he is the sacrifice that redeems us. And so you see, with a lot of these people, you'll, you'll see it again with Joseph. Is you have these types of Christ where it's. Uh, foretelling what Jesus is going to do, where you get a little glimpse. You certainly don't see the whole picture, but you get a glimpse of how God is going to accomplish his plan. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, you really don't see a lot of Isaac. There's the story of the of the sacrifice, where not only do you see Abraham, who's over a hundred, his son is probably in his mid twenties at this point, who can easily take his dad. It's not like he's an eight year old and he's confused. Like he knows what's going on and he's submitting to his father and laying down. Um, and then there's a story about how he finds his wife, how God providentially provides Rebecca, and that's about it. Yeah, which is a, which is a made-for-film uh, story, so epic. You know, dad's on his deathbed, sends out his servant, and uh, you're going to find her by the camels. You know, it's just like <laughs> such a fascinating, the way that it unfolds. But uh, but there is in that wrapped up God's providence working on behalf of his people to bring about his plan. Right. And uh, we, we did skip over. We know that we skipped over some really crazy things that happens. God's destruction of Sodom. Yeah. Um, was in there and uh, just the craziest thing to me about that story is what the man offers you know for the angels the angels don't let him do that you know but I'm like dude don't let him do that either it's, just, it's all really messed up in there if you go back and read that story it's very distressing very disturbing and um, I think that we can kind of sometimes be like a little bit shocked at God's wrath but then you see just the horrific things that were unfolding and God, God what's more amazing to me is that God's wrath has been patient or like was patiently waiting throughout yeah. all of that. Cause he, he poured it out in one sense then on, at Noah's time, but he was kind, preserved Noah and his family. And then it wasn't like corruption or sin kind of took a break uh, until Jesus came. It was steadily growing, increasing and there was brokenness all over the place. And uh, really God's interaction with, or Abraham's interaction with the, with God and these two angels, it was it's still a kind of a crazy story yeah. mixed in there. We know we're skipping over some of those. I, yeah, I know it's an aside to the main storyline. So remember earlier we talked about Lot, Abraham's nephew, who had an argument with, and then Lot left. Lot went and founded these cities, the Sodom and Gomorrah, the the um, this culture in this valley, and. It is an aside where you're just kind of like, this is crazy, and what on earth is going on? But it's a reminder that the corruption from Babel, the corruption from even before the flood, that these things are happening around Abraham. While God is being kind to this one family, the world is not changing. It is still in this place of distress. And not only is it a reminder that God is bringing redemption, and God is bringing salvation and has a plan to restore everything that was broken. But also he is a God who is just, who is uh, going to judge all wickedness and evil. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's that pretty stark reminder in Sodom and Gomorrah where it's just like when God is choosing to be kind to Abraham and especially Jacob here in a bit, like he is, he is a forgiving God, but there is a judgment for all evil if you are not, if if you are not forgiven, if there's not that grace shown to you, then you're still under judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's making that available to all people. Yeah, I think I've heard it said. Well, there's there, the difference is not between good people and bad people, but forgiven people and unforgiven people. Right. And so that's what our distinctions will be. And so we we know that there's there's a lot that's not we're not covering in there, but we're trying to again try to help unpack the main plot lines along the way. And so you get to this point, Isaac is taken up on the hill and God commands him to sacrifice him. And, and so God says to him, uh, or the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn declares the Lord, 
you hear that again, by myself, on my name, I've sworn, because there's nothing higher for him to right. make a promise off of. Uh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven uh, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And so do you hear that? You're not withheld your son, your only son, which is exactly what the father did not do for us. He didn't withhold his son, his only son, from mm-hmm. uh, reconciling us to him. And um, and you see this a fascinating thing in here where um, uh, there's a song called Pro- False Prophets. Um, and uh, if, if, if you worship Jesus to get money, then Jesus isn't your God. Money is. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if, if Abraham was ultimately following God to get a kid, you know, to get the descendants, if that's what he was worshiping, then he would never have let go or relinquished Isaac in that moment, right? That was about relinquishing what he uh, God had promised because he was worshiping God, not Isaac, right? which is so profound. And so then again, so yeah, you fast forward, you get to uh, end of... Um, Abraham's life, he wants a, a, a wife for Isaac from uh, his family line. And so he sends a servant out to go and find uh, find this wife. And it's kind of an amazing story of providence. And, you know, uh, it is somewhat anticlimactic because then it's like, and they return and then they're married. You know, it's like. It, it, yeah, it's very much like love at first sight. It's, it's very romantic where there, God is providing a spouse and it's not just like someone but as soon as Isaac and Rebecca see each other they fall in love with each other and yeah. like it, it makes a point of saying how much they're attracted to each other and it's just like this uh fiery super romantic kind of thing where it's not just yeah. like uh you know chosen spouse it's whatever yeah. which is kind of how we characterize I think um arranged marriages these days but it was something where they were it was like a, a second Adam and Eve almost where they saw each other and like wow yeah. oh my gosh yeah, let's do this. And they did, and they had kids. And um, Jacob and Esau were those kids. And two boys. Two boys. And um, and there's this moment where uh, they didn't have, uh, I've been to these, um, what is it called? Where you scan and you can see the tummy inside of the, baby, the babies in the womb. I, can't I don't know why you're asking me. <laughs> You have kids. The anatomy I, scan. I can't remember. Anatomy ultra, scan? Uh, uh, <laughs> that's what they call it. Ultrasound. Uh, the ultrasound, yeah. And so they didn't, wow, guys. I, it's been a long time. Emma is five months old. I forgot all about ultrasounds. But they didn't have ultrasounds. And um, in, you see this uh, this moment where you see in verse 22, chapter 25, verse 22, the children struggled within her. And she said, if, the, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she was like in a lot of pain and... And uh, she's like, I think something's supposed good supposed to be happening to these kids, but because uh, Isaac had prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Again, this it's again another trope as we're using the word trope is uh, <laughs> barren women throughout the scriptures. God cares about deeply and so frequently is blessing in, in some kind of crazy way. Well, culturally too, if you were barren, it was, you were cursed for some reason that, that, yeah. that cultural understanding was if you could not have kids, either you sinned or someone in your sphere or your family sinned, and this is a punishment yeah. and you deserve it. And if, if you're married to someone who's barren, you should probably figure something else out. You should get another wife because she's not going to do anything for you. Yeah. And, Honestly, you see the subversion of a lot of cultural ideas 
uh, at the time where Baron God is showing unique kindness to barren women that everyone in the world doesn't. You see primogeniture, the idea that the first son is the inheritor of everything, and God chooses the younger son as he's about to do, or even polygamy. You know, we look at the Old Testament, and we're like, well, was polygamy right? And you see Abram take take part in it. You see Jacob take part in it here in a little bit. But every time someone takes part in polygamy, it goes so wrong. Mm-hmm. And the world just erupts into chaos, and it's destructive for the family. It's destructive for the kids. It's destructive for both spouses. Um, You just see that God is not playing by the cultural rules here. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas if this were an invented story, you probably wouldn't see Abraham do anything wrong. Like, he'd probably be a, a... cast much more as a superhero or any of the patriarchs. There are all these like very, very flawed people and God is leading them in a way that is contrary and in a positive way, contrary to the cultural ideas of the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is fascinating how it's like, and God chose it just, you could do a whole sermon series on the barren women of scripture, you know, like it's like over and over again, like God says, Oh, you don't value this person. I value them. Oh, you think you should do it that way? I'm doing it this way. And uh, he is, I've heard it said that uh, the gospel is at home in every culture and at odds with every culture. And so there's a sense in which the gospel can make its way into any culture, but it's going to stand against certain components of it that God is not, he doesn't change his mind on these things. And and he doesn't value people the way that we do and the way that he doesn't see them the way that we do so often. And so, um, and Rebecca was another, I mean, because again, she was this providentially chosen wife for Isaac out of the very, like, she's the one, but if she's the one, God, what were you thinking? She's barren. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, turns out she's not anymore. Uh, and she's, you know, things are going crazy in her womb. And it's because the, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger, which I don't know if he, maybe he just said that to her. And so she had in the back of her mind all of these years, like, Something's going on with the younger one, you know. Even though they're twins, you know, the the one who would come out second is Jacob, named that way because of the way he was gripping his brother's heel, Esau, who was apparently just an extremely hairy red, yeah, red-haired man, covered yeah. with red hair from birth. Like Esau means red, yeah, and so basically they just called him Red, like he's some 1940s <laughs> guy. Oh, red, red, just yeah, there so he is, Red. <laughs> And red is like salt of the earth, good old boy. He's going to go out in the field. He's going to hunt. He's going to cook that into stew. <laughs> and then Jacob is much more of like an at-home, homebody, mama's boy. A, tw- uh, a tent-dwelling man. A tent-dwelling man, so it says, which like you got to think at the time is a kind of like backhanded compliment or backhanded description. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're a... He doesn't go hunting. He's a tent dwelling. Yeah, he reads books. Yeah, he's bookish. <laughs> yeah, he's and he is. He's a he's a bookish kid, and his dad prefers uh, Esau. And this is another crazy component of the women, uh, the women driving the story in a funny, interesting way. Is that uh, um, uh, his mom? So Rebecca was like, you know what? I want. 
I, I've, she just favored Jacob. I don't think we should favor our kids and none of that. But like in terms of this day and age, the birthrights and the blessings and the kind of who's going to get the inheritance component of the, all of this, uh, Esau is not just the one who Jacob would prefer or uh, is not just the one that Isaac would prefer, but he is the one that culture would prefer. And so when it comes time to, to distribute this blessing, um, Isaac's getting old. He's like on his, not he's on his blind. Dead. Yeah. He's just very, very old. And he's like, I don't know how long I'm going to live. So Esau, go out in the field, give me something like make me, Cook a, me dinner. Yeah. Make me a, go hunt me down something good. I want a steak. I want a steak dinner. going to set up this nice meal and I'm going to give you your blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that functions sort of like a will where it's like, here's things are going to come to you and here's how this is going to operate. And, um, and so, Rebecca hears this. She she kind of listens in and says, "Okay, Jacob, now's the time. We're going to swoop in and steal this blessing." And yeah. and again, playing out our broken hero trope uh, is just this uh, idea where it's like he does some things in the in this chapter where it's like, should you have done that? Yeah. So yeah, we're in chapter twenty six. Yeah, if you if you're following along. But Jacob's name means the deceiver. And you see some pretty intense deception where Jacob disguises himself to sound like his brother. He makes food that his brother would make. He changes his voice. He just lies to his dad, like completely deceives him. He's like, yep, I'm Esau. Give me the blessing. And fools his dad. Isaac believes him. Mm-hmm. And Jacob gets the blessing. When Esau comes back, he's like, hey, dad, I'm ready for the blessing. <laughs> and, you know, today we'd be like, oh, shoot, I think I said this to someone else. I'll just say it to you. I mean it to you. But back then, blessing was such a big deal. He just said, I don't have a blessing to give you. I've already given it away. It who, was a it was a real thing. Yeah. Like, like, it, who did I give this to? <laughs> and I actually heard a story yesterday that I think there are things to, still today that are like this that are they're so real and it matters. And, and so it was a, basically a guy who was in a situation where he was either going to be terminated, wrongfully terminated. It was a crazy story. His, his boss, was, his company was going to fire him. But if he resigned beforehand, then um, that radically changes the trajectory of his career and impacts a lot of different things. And he was, he was like, my lawyer explained to me that literally whoever's paper hits the ground first wins. And so if you resign, if my paper hits the desk first, then I resigned before you terminated me. And there's real consequences to that. And I was like, that's fascinating. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and in this case, it's like there's real consequences to this blessing. And what's, it, and again, just so amazing or kind of fascinating that, that God, it wasn't like God was like, okay, I guess he gave it to Jacob. So we'll go with that one. You know, yeah. it was, it was like, no, I. I mean, I think Rachel probably, if she went back, she's like, no, I, I, I knew this in my heart from the beginning that God was going to bless Jacob. Yeah, God, God said it before they were born. And you see that as a theme through the rest of the Bible, really, where God, when he ever, whenever God is explaining his choice, Esau and Jacob come up. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this distinction of there are these twins, and I chose the second one. Yeah. And I can do that. Because I'm God. Romans, right? Yeah. Paul makes that argument where he's like, we just have to look at that and say God chose him and he did it for a reason. And it, what I think we can kind of like get a little bit 
uh, ruffled by that or concerned about that mm-hmm. because deep down we want to operate off of a karmic belief in God where it's like, but God, I did the right thing. So you owe me, right? Oh, you owe me heaven or you owe me, uh, a healthy family or you owe me this job or you owe me because we want to put God in our debt. And in reality, we're, 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 God will not be put in our debt because he, it's his choice, which actually for us ends up being a really uh, good thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, really, we're, we're trying to turn a covenant into a contract where right. a contract is, hey, we signed a deal. Mm-hmm. I upheld my end. I, I went to church on Sunday. I tithed. I did everything right. Now it's your turn to come through. And you do your part, God, and you give me what I want. Whereas this is a covenant where God has freely chosen us, given us far more blessing than we deserve. And when we fail, has chosen to be faithful to us through that. Mm-hmm. And... He is giving us that covenant instead of getting into a contract with us where if we were in a contract with God, we would have broken it before he would have ever owed us anything Mm -hmm. and is giving us a far better deal. If you want to cast it in that light, a far better deal Mm -hmm. than the one that we try to make where it is like, I I did all these things. Mm -hmm. When are you going to come through for me? Mm-hmm. But that is that is a really powerful thing. I mean, I've seen people walk away from their faith because they're like, God didn't come through in this situation. Something bad happened to me, even though I was a good person, a good Christian my whole life. How would a good God give me something bad after I've done all this good? Mm-hmm. Whereas when you see the covenant that God is making, it's even though all these circumstances seem like they're going to fall apart, even though you know, you're not going to see a way forward when I tell you, Hey, I'm going to bless you with many kids. And you're just like, there's no way this is going to happen. You have to wait on God and promise his promise that he's going to come through rather than just saying, well, shoot, (laughs) I I, I think I need to be the one in charge because you're just not, you're just not holding up your end of the deal. Mm -hmm. Which is, takes us right back to what are we worshiping in, in all of that. And I think, I think in this, the thing that, uh, well, we had a brief conversation before this just where I was pondering the what if, you know, the, the a question really it's not useful to ask because there's no good answer to what if. There's no what ifs in Narnia uh, or in this <laughs> universe or, you know, domain. But uh, but I did ask myself, like, what if Esau had just gone with it? You know, what if Esau had just said, you know what, I guess God blessed Jacob. I guess that was his plan. You know what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing is trusting this God to bless Jacob because I'm hope my only hope is in the promise that he made to Jacob, which is not ultimately about Jacob because you see it again. He affirms it uh, uh, again when, when Jacob was dreaming, you see the, he has a dream of just Jacob's ladder, which Jesus makes a reference to himself as that ladder. I am the angels are, of God are ascending and descending on me. Mm-hmm. I'm the ladder. I'm the gate. The, what he says in John 10, I'm the entry point to heaven, no other place. But, he, but he, Jacob has this dream and he says to God says to him, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, which is just a lot, you know, um, and <laughs> you shall spread ab- abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, every direction. And in you and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So what I just I, what I ache about with Esau is that he missed the whole point of the promise because he, if he had faith 
to trust God's covenant, then he would be in that space of being blessed through his brother's family. Right. But we can't stand for our brother to be the one who receives the blessing because we don't trust in God's ultimate plan. Right. So we see our, that's what makes us jealous. I'm watching my own two kids deal with jealousy. And we can't, we can't imagine a God who could still do good for us even while he's doing good for somebody else. Mm. And I think that just that makes me sad. And I think it's tragic. And there's a moment where just pastorally don't look at the blessings in other people's lives and think that God is ripping you off. Or don't, don't um, ache for just some kind of temporary blessing. Believe in the God who can bring about your blessing through the promise of the gospel. Like, he's, he's doing that, you know? So Yeah, so 26, 27, and 28, what you see. You don't see Esau support his brother. You see him try to kill Jacob mm-hmm. because that might be the only way that he could get the <laughs> blessing back from Jacob is if he killed him. And so Jacob runs out into the wilderness. He's all by himself. He makes a very contractual sort of prayer with God where he's like, hey, if you keep me alive, then I'm going to worship you. Um, and you would think that after this event, Jacob's life would turn around. He would be on the straight and narrow from here on out. He's learned his lesson. He's not going to try to trick anyone else. But then he comes to his family member's house, Laban, and... The next, I mean, what is it? 29 through 31 are all him and Laban trying to scam each other. (laughs) Yes. And it is epic. This family is fascinating because like Jacob is, it's so clear that God's hand is upon him for just because it's like everything he touches is working, which is for the record, not always a blessing. So we can look at like things, success as like, I guess God loves me. I'm going to keep winning y'all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not how it works because half the time that is just God's wrath because he's letting you get what you want because, and not really get what you need. And, uh, but in this case, it's like, Hey, God's just growing the wealth of this guy. He's growing his impact or influence. And, uh, but they are, they're doing crazy things to each other. Uh, for one, he's like, he's like so in love with Rachel is the younger younger daughter. Yeah, again, now this is still playing out this like younger sibling thing. I'm a younger sibling, so that's great for me. Um, but uh, and so is my wife, so we're just double double younger siblings. But um, yeah, so he's like I'm I'm in love with this girl. Laban is like, "Oh man, he's just crazy about my daughter. What can I get get out of this deal? 7 years of yeah, work for me for 7 years and then you can marry my daughter." Yeah. And they he's specific about that language. He says you can marry like he's because at the end of seven years, seven years of working hard labor, you know, working livestock or out in a field because you're in love with somebody and you're like, that is such a long time. At the end of those seven years, Laban says, oh, you're in love with Rachel. Well, I can't exactly marry you to my younger daughter while my older daughter is still unmarried. So actually you get to marry my older daughter, Leah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so just for the, just cause it's so romantic, um, <laughs> verse 20, 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him, but a few days oh. because of the love he had for her. I mean, that is romantic. Y'all that is so romantic. He's like seven years. I would do that in a heartbeat. It's like a day. I would rather just anything to marry you, Rachel. And, and Laban's like, anything to marry my daughter and he gets whatever's happening you know on their wedding feast night uh it it doesn't occur to him until the morning uh that it was leah that he married and slept (laughs) with leah yeah that's his wife 
Yep. And so, ta-da, in the morning, it was Leah. And so, Leah is definitely just, a, like, she, I think, represents in the story another one of the, like, not not undesirables, you know, of the world. Oh, it's, it, her story is truly tragic because she loves Jacob and she wants to be a good wife and wants to provide sons and be there for him, but he just wants nothing to do with her. Yeah. Um, and Jacob works a few more years, gets to marry Rachel, but you just see every time Leah bears his son for Jacob, for a while, it's like, maybe he'll love me now. Mm-hmm. Maybe he'll notice me now that mm-hmm. I have more sons for him. Because Rachel is in the, the barren camp mm-hmm. where she can't have sons for a while. So Leah is having all of these boys and it's just like yearning to get Jacob's attention mm-hmm. and she can't. And then, uh, there, there's a turn at the very end with, with Judah. Yeah. Right? Cause so it's like, I, maybe he'll love me now. Maybe he'll love me now. I just wish that you'd love me. And then finally it comes and, and she, uh, uh, again, she bore a son and said, now this time my husband will t- be attached to me. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. And so, th- which Judah means praise. And so it's like she finally, finally gets to a place where she's, her, her longing is no longer looking for um, Jacob to fill that kind of gap in her soul. Right. She says, I'm going to worship God. Because God is the one who sees me and cares for me in the midst of this moment, mm-hmm. you know, which, you know, uh, kind of foreshadowing Judah ends up being a much bigger playmaker in this story than you expect, than I expect just oh, at yeah. the first reading, you know. Right. Um, but, you know, the rest of the, like, that story unfolds with a crazy back and forth of giving servants to be to sleep with Jacob and and so there J- Jacob is having lots and lots of kids with what ends up being four different people uh, four different women over the course of these chapters and it's just a crazy back and forth like again highlighting this is not an edited kind of like cleaned up story this is pretty raw and people just trying to do what they think is best and figure it out on their own and God working despite them. Yeah. In a typical Near Eastern story like this, it would be all celebration. Like, look at this dude. Look at how many wives he has and how many sons he has. And this story is so different because it focuses on the specific wives and the hurts that they're carrying and how this collection of women like objects is destructive. And even with the relationships the sons are going to have with each other, how it's destructive. And so there is this where we, I think you can read this and be like, so God's condoning all of this. Mm -hmm. There's no way like I can accept any of this. This is so regressive. This is so backwards and outdated. But I think when you really read it and understand what God is doing here, you see that he's not condoning it. It is a cultural practice, but it's not something that he is actively working. He's working through it, but really working despite it Yep. Uh, to accomplish his goals. Yep. And uh, and so you see them get to this point where Jacob's like, man, I, okay, I'm done working for you, father-in-law. I need to move out on my own. And this is, this is just kind of an interpretive challenge moment where you see th- it's kind of hard to discern what's happening. They're trying to trick each other out of one another's wealth here because the, the goats and the flocks and all those things, that is their, those are basically like, oh, that's like their cash reserves. Yeah. And they both have a ton of goats and 
sheep and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And Laban has caught on to the fact that really the cash cow here is Jacob because he's making it happen. He's really savvy. And so he tries to work him out of some, some of this cash. And, uh, and so Jacob goes about doing something that you read it and you're like, I, I'm just going to kind of go past this. <laughs> like he's doing something with goats. He's peeling off strips of bark from trees, putting it in the water in front of them while they're breeding. And it's like, <laughs> bro, I don't know what's happening here, but we're just going to keep moving and assume that it's all cool. Um, but you did a little bit of research about yeah, this. Yeah, I did a little bit of research because I was just trying to lean into that. And uh, so it's not just like crazy folklore where um, uh, Jacob was... I mean, when I read it, the impression that I get is that Jacob thinks if I put spotted things in front of the goats while they're breeding, their babies will be spotted. And that's... It's not what's happening. Ultimately, he's stri- stripping off this barks, uh, the bark of these trees, putting it in the water, which kind of can function like this herbal remedy for uh, fertility for animals. So it's like an animal husbandry trick kind of where he is breeding what you could only assume are goats with recessive genes. Because the deal is, he's like... his father, The deal they made is, I get all the spotted ones. You know, and they use some other terms, but just for our conversation all the pure white or pure black ones i get to keep you keep them label them i'll get the spotted ones um and what he does is he ends up breeding them in such a way where the spotted ones just take off right so there's tons and tons of them and it's like he he's like i'm going to invest in these stocks for me and these stocks for you and it turns out that the market just went crazy on the stocks for yeah uh, for jacob and and so that was even when Laban had stacked the cards against him. And so it's this moment where it's you can look at it and be like, one, Jacob was pretty savvy with the goats. He knew what was going on. Like he was paying attention. He was really excellent at what he did. But ultimately, he was working off of God's providence in blessing him because he was breeding a recessive gene in goats because Laban had sectioned out all the other spotted ones. But the point of all of this is not... Hey, look how savvy Jacob was, and he worked it over on Laban. Like, it wasn't like, and I think so many of our stories today that the final note of it, the, the really the, the end of it all is like a happily ever after for that individual. Mm-hmm. And it, it's those stories are kind of like fun, you know, and they're uh, interesting because it's like, oh, look how it turned out for them, you know, and it's like, and then they won the World Series or they won the pennant, which is like, in Rookie of the Year, it's like they just end up winning the pennant. They didn't win World World Series. Yeah, and I'm like you guys didn't even try to play it out that far. Like you didn't take it. Season's to the, not over. Fellas. <laughs> take it to the championship, guys. But but it's just interesting. And so this story though is not like ultimately about just how Jacob wins. It's about again how God's moving the story forward through this individual. Yeah, and there's the repeated refrain of Jacob being blessed here, mm-hmm. and. Jacob thinking he's creating blessing for himself, but that coming through God. Mm -hmm. So he gets the blessing. Well, that just fulfills God's prophecy. He leaves, goes to Laban. He's blessed with a lot of sons. Well, ultimately that's coming from not the wife that he wants, but the one that God sees. He gets all of these uh, goats, which ultimately means he's extremely wealthy. And that comes from the blessing from God. But next you see him go out into the wilderness and wrestle with God. And the one thing he demands while he's wrestling with God is, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. Like there's this idea in his mind, 
where he hasn't been blessed. He doesn't have what he deserves, even though God throughout his life has been giving and giving and giving and giving. Jacob is still at a point where he's like, I just want more. I need more. I need you to give, give, mm-hmm. give. Um, but that's also a crazy story when Jacobson is wrestling with someone yeah. all night. And it's not like he's, it's not like a mental battle that he's in. Because at the end of it, it's a physical consequence that he has for wrestling this individual. In the wrestling match, you get the impression that he's just kind of clinging onto this guy, wrestling him. And his victory isn't so much in that he defeats him, but that he is just continuing to wrestle with him because the guy is going to leave. Mm-hmm. And so, but what we find up finding out is that he is, he is wrestling with God in a sense. Uh, how, what that sense is, we don't have, we doesn't. If it's a pre-incarnate Christ who right. he's wrestling, physically wrestling with, if... Um, the text seems to make clear that he is physically wrestling with God. Mm-hmm. And even though we don't quite understand how that might be, um, a, a pre-incarnate Christ, the seminary word for that is Christophany. And you'll see it a lot. Um, or not a lot. You'll see it a few other times. Um, we think the angel of the Lord might be a pre-incarnate Christ um, who shows up in the burning bush or the leader of the Lord's armies. Uh, but this really could be one where the second person of the Trinity is physically showing up, wrestling with Jacob, and Jacob won't let go as morning's coming and says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And the blessing is, great, your name is Israel. So Jacob's name changes to, it changes to Israel, which means wrestles with God. Mm-hmm. And Israel becomes the name of the nations that his 12 sons found, which is so interesting because you would think, that a nation who claims to be God's chosen people would call themselves the chosen or God's people, but they call themselves wrestles with God. And it's not just that he gets a name, but the God touches his hip and knocks it out of socket. And for the rest of his life, Jacob is humbled and walks with a limp. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never had my hip pop out of socket but I've heard it is unbelievably painful. Yeah. I, I don't want to find out. No. Seems really, really painful. And there's something that's sort of like poetic justice in that like moment. Cause it's like, well, is God like, is he, is God weak enough or is, is Jacob like really jacked and he can wrestle with God? Cause ultimately what you end up seeing is God just says, touches him. Poof. And there goes his hip. Yeah. You know, I asked a friend who was a doctor what it takes for someone to dislocate their hip. And I was like, is it like a really bad football hit to the side? And he said, no, it's like a head on collision at 60 miles per hour. That's when you see people dislocate their hips is when they're moving that far forward and they hit a brick wall. Yeah. Then their hips pop out. Yeah. Like it is, it is a severe, you are running or driving in a single direction and you just get stopped on a dime. That's yeah. when it happens. Man, that's that's powerful because that's in a sense that like Jacob, it, I, there's a there's a sense in which he's been he, he didn't have the Bible. He's not like he didn't have all this written down. He right. has a he's learning about God through this process, and his learning about Him will cause and stir in him worship for who this God is, who can with the touch of his finger knock your hip out of socket. You know, and it's the God who creates and the God who is whose blessing we really ultimately need a bless, blessing meaning unmerited gift you know favor yeah um, and you wouldn't see that that limp as a gift at this point no because this is also when Esau shows back up yeah and, and so right as Jacob's been weakened his brother who sought to kill him shows back up with his whole family which 
you could essentially read his army, like yep. his sons coming and showing up against Jacob and his sons. Yeah. It doesn't go bad for them in that moment. It's actually like a real tense moment, kind of yeah. like a showdown. And you're like, oh man, Esau's going to be ticked. Oh, that's exactly, if you're reading this for the first time, you, that's exactly what you're thinking. You're like, this is it. There's a battle and Esau's going to kill him. Because mm-hmm. again, he's the hairy dude with a great bow mm-hmm. and he's really good with using it. He's like a hairy Legolas, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> I told I told Will before this, he doesn't watch Marvel movies, but... <laughs> This is like Thor and Loki. So uh, Esau is like Thor, the big, strong, athletic warrior. And Jacob is Loki, who's a little bit more slight, not very athletic, but very smart person. Who, if he's going to beat his brother, is going to have to manipulate him. Yeah. And so they have this meeting. Things don't go poorly. Uh, Esau is kind to him, surprisingly. Yeah, shockingly, just so forgiving and gracious towards him. And you get a picture of Esau's descendants. Like he, you just, that's a, probably a chapter that was, you're just like, do I, how do I say yeah. Meza, We're Meza in 36 Hab? at this point. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, Zera, Bozra, uh, Jobab was one, I think, in there. You know, and so is it, uh, Haydad had Jobab and, and, and all these crazy names. And so what you're doing is, what, what I've heard one author say is these are kind of um, horizontal genealogies. It's showing how people are spreading around the world, but there are such, there's also vertical genealogies where the story is moving forward through them. So you get Esau's descendants, but then you pick up, um, uh, the, the word is uh, Toledoth in the Hebrew. There, there's these Toledoths, and there's, there's several of them throughout Genesis, and that's sort of these micro stories within them. And so you get Esau's descendants, but then it picks up um, with the generations of Jacob. And so that's another moment that's like a line. We're just going to keep on going through. We're going to get through Jacob here. Right. Um, but so you get that line in the mar- in the sand, kind of like a, a heading in the story where in chapter 37, where Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And so you're kind of like, oh, he's in the land. This is great. Um, this is things are moving forward with this blessing, the land seed and blessing, blessing of uh, or of the covenant in G- Genesis 12. And it says these are the generations of Jacob. But then it starts telling just this story of Joseph, um, who is uh, uh, not his youngest son, but one of his youngest, his next yeah. to youngest son. He's one of Rachel's sons. Yeah. Which is a rarity because she had very few of them. She had two sons, I believe, uh, uh, Joseph and Benjamin are her sons. And all the rest are Leah's sons. But those 12 sons are the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, uh, Or 11 sons are the fathers of the 12 tribes. We'll get to how that works out. But um, uh, there's this one story of Joseph. And Jacob just shows him unusual and very, uh, very obvious favoritism Yep. where he creates a climate in his family where he is almost forcing his sons to be jealous of Joseph. That's really well said. He creates a climate. He creates a climate of jealousy. Yeah. Uh, and really because he favors Joseph so obviously gives him a special jacket, um, and all, and then Joseph doesn't help him, doesn't do himself any favors because he, I mean, I think he just is like, hey, dad's just an idiot. <laughs> he's, seven. He's, just a, he's the spoiled kid who doesn't realize that what he's saying is stupid. But he goes up to his brothers. He's like, hey, guys, I had this dream that I was the king and all of you serve me. And yeah. his older brothers who are like 
you know, Joseph, I imagine him to be like a 10 year old saying this. I think he's 17. Like, yeah. All his brothers are like grown men. Yeah. They're 40. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then their 17 year old bro is like, who hasn't done anything. He doesn't do anything for them. Yeah. Uh, Another thing to Because, because later on they're all out taking care of the animals and Joseph's still hanging out playing video games at the house. Yeah. Uh, more or less. And, uh, and so, yeah, he's like, I had a dream that I was in charge of all you guys. <laughs> and they're like, they're just like. While he's wearing this really yeah. fancy coat. <laughs> and they're like, okay, we, we know what we're going to do with you. And then he has another dream. And he's like, I actually had a dream that even mom and dad were too. And uh, you see Jacob like, what? Hey, what'd you say, kid? Okay. We're just going to. And he kind of, he kind of tucks that away. But this, it, it's building attention to where uh, there's a moment where these brothers all turn on him. And they turn on him in varying degrees. Like one of them, Reuben actually tries to, uh, who's like the oldest, he's like, uh, let's not necessarily kill him. Yeah, because most of the brothers just want to kill him and throw him in a ditch. Straight up. And, uh, and so he, he, it works out in their scheme uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, throw him in a pit, and he ends up getting sold into slavery by this caravan that's passing by. And just as a note, like on the mo, like this is there's a quote. I've just in the climate of the society that we're in right now. Like um, there's a quote that I can't. Every time I hear this scripture, I think of the quote that's outside of where MLK got shot, um, and it's a quote from Genesis about um, uh, here comes this dreamer and let's kill him. Hmm. And uh, and you think about Martin Luther King's, you know, I have a dream speech and like his vision there for reconciled. Uh, uh, this this living out racial reconciliation of the gospel, which is like so beautifully, like he's proclaiming really the hope of the scriptures when he's making that speech, and uh, and people saw that and they hated it. And and uh, what's interesting is that's actually a really positive quote. And yeah. and and really like his dream was beautiful, and Joseph's dream was just about how uh, his brothers were going to bow down to him. He didn't even understand the context of what that dream was going right. to play out to be, but it ticked his brothers off, and. Um, and they sold them into slavery. And, and then you, so we're going to watch that story play out with just crazy amounts of providence. Joseph is one of the, after this comment, one of the most faithful guys that we'll see in this story. Yeah. Well, in, you know, this whole second part of Genesis. Yeah. Um, but they stick in, in, in chapter 38, uh, it, it's kind of, it almost feels like uh, an aside where you get, you get Judah's family line and you're like, um, it, it's, it really is functions like kind of like an aside in the story. And it is a crazy family dynamic in Judah's family. Judah's family uh, has some stuff going on. <laughs> really like, you know, there's so many things that are complicated. His, one of his kids is just wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord puts him to death. So Judah says to his other kid, hey, you need to have kids with your brother's wife because that's how it worked in the back in the day. And he was doing some weird stuff to ensure that that wouldn't happen. And so Tamar, um, she said, you know what? I got a plan. I'm going to dress up like a prostitute and Judah's going to sleep with me. And Tamar was the widow. Yes, yeah, she's the widow of Judah's the son. Guy. Yeah. And so she's like, well, I guess I'm just going to dress up like a prostitute so my father-in-law will have kids with me because nobody else will because I need to have some kids. And you're like... Is it what? Um, and then he does. Uh, Judah, Judah does it. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, she pulls a gotcha because he 
gives her his signet ring and like some other defi- like basically gives him his her driver his driver's license and uh, and then she she comes back and has you know has the kid and she, they're like who's the dad and she's like how about this guy and it's like Judah and he's like oh yep it was me where'd you get that <laughs> that ring oh shoot <laughs> and and it's like what why is this story in here you know and so. It's a wild story, but what it's a foreshadowing of the role that Judah end up, ends up playing. So that's all we're going to say about it. For you know, we're going to move through yeah. this Joseph story really quickly. But you see, Joseph, he's down in Egypt. Comes across a moment where he again, it feels like injustice after injustice, wrongfully accused, yeah. wrongfully imprisoned. All these things well, are being wrongfully faithful. He serves well, and this guy he's sold to a guy named Potiphar. Uh, does so well and is so faithful. He's like the head of the household. And Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him when he says, I'm not going to sleep with you because God, like that would be a sin against God. Mm-hmm. Not a sin against your husband. This would be a sin against God. So I'm not going to sleep with you. Then she wrongfully accuses him of attempted rape, mm-hmm. gets him thrown in prison. He's there for years, does so well that the guards trust him to look after all the other inmates. Um, and start trusting him to interpret their dreams. Um, and he ends up getting in front of Pharaoh and Pharaoh it, it rightfully interprets one of Pharaoh's dreams and Pharaoh believes it and uses his dream as an opportunity to prepare for a coming famine, but forgets that Joseph is in prison. Doesn't <laughs> reward him at all. But it's like, Hey, this prisoner did well for me, but I'm going to leave him there for a couple more years. Yeah. So this faithful guy seems like he's completely abandoned and forgotten. It's it's a in the, in the interesting refrain throughout Joseph's life that you have to just again zero in on uh, as we're trying to this story is not just interesting but it's impactful. That's mm-hmm. what Drew and I were talking about before this is that the story that's unfolding in Genesis is not simply interesting. That would be any movie that's made. Hopefully, people can tell interesting stories, but it moves from being interesting to you to impactful to you because you watch not the broken heroes in the way they act, but how God acts. Right, and you get insight into what's happening the way that God is writing a story because what it says over and over again with Joseph is it says the Lord was with Joseph. And, and so just to read the context or the circumstances of our lives and believe that God is with us because things are going well or he's not with us because things are not going well is crazy when you read the Bible. Yeah. Because it says, and God was with him. And sometime after that, you know, like sometimes it's using language like that. So we're like, we don't even know how long Joseph has been just sitting there, just killing time, but being excellent and faithful wherever God puts right. him. Um, and so, yeah, then he interprets a dream and... Uh, and then uh, you get this rise to power. And it's, again, not just about Joseph rising to power. Like, it's it, this story is bigger and it's better than just Joseph, you know? And it's playing into this larger narrative. But it is fascinating and amazing because what Joseph actually turns into, so he's he's got this spiritual gift of interpreting dreams that happens. And he's like, you know what, Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. But then Pharaoh's like, what do you think we should do? And he's like, uh, I've got a plan for some warehousing, you know, a, stra- a warehousing a famine. What if we like made this tax on grain so we could save grain for the for the famine and prepare for it? And Pharaoh's like, you're a genius. Great. Do it. <laughs> Somebody give this guy a job, yeah. you know, and uh, <laughs> you're hired. And uh, and so he gets to be this place of prominence in Egypt that is, again, totally God's providence, but not about his success. Because what you see ultimately is that um, there's famine in the place where all of uh, Israel is living. All of the, all of the brothers and their family is in a really bad spot, and they're not going to
going to make it. And so the promise that God made back in Genesis 12 now becomes threatened. And so because would this family be able to endure um, or would they perish? And so God uses Joseph in the role and the position that he's in to take care of God's promise. Right. So he brings down the family to Egypt and there's a kind of a super emotional, crazy moment with the reveal, you know, because he's yeah. probably dressed up, painted up like a pharaoh himself, like in a different way. They don't recognize they, they, him. They, the Egyptians shaved all the hair off their body except for their goatees. They, they heavily painted their faces. And, you know, with their belief that Joseph is long gone, some slave someplace. And the way that he is probably dressed as an Egyptian, they probably wouldn't recognize him at all. Yeah. And you see all these things playing out in Joseph where he's like, oh, but well, actually you don't see him like seething at them. You see him really slow to reveal himself. And it's kind of fascinating to me. Just he's like, he really wants Benjamin. Like he wants to like, he, he's, he, he plays a chess game with his brothers more or less to get everybody there. Right. And then he gets everybody there. He reveals himself. Yeah, he, he tells them that they have to bring Benjamin, the, the youngest son. Um, and when they go to their dad and like, hey, this this guy won't give us grain unless Benjamin shows up. Uh, Jacob essentially says, oh, so he wants everything from me. And it shows that Jacob has moved from his favoritism towards Joseph to now Benjamin, who is Rachel's last son. And it's like, this is everything. Mm-hmm. But Benjamin going to Egypt actually brings Jacob and his whole house to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And when he gets there, Joseph reveals himself. Um, and actually in chapter, uh, chapter 50 says something really profound where he looks at his brothers and he says, everything that happened, everything that God in, or everything that you intended for evil, God intended for good so that many lives might have been saved. Mm-hmm. And so he, he not only trusts God through all of these highs and lows, but he also has the perspective of even when things happen to me that I wouldn't want that seem wrong. God is working through those. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to hold these evils against someone else because despite my what my brothers did, it ended up creating an opportunity for their actual physical salvation to come here and be in Egypt. Yeah. Um, you see, he's, he, uh, uh, first, chapter 45, verse 5, And now uh, do not be distressed or angry with, your, with yourselves because you sold me here. He, he, like, he like creates a environment for forgiveness like he mm-hmm. he's calling them to um uh forgive even themselves in this space of like re- repent from this for god sent me before you to preserve life and he oh man it's just a mega thing where it's like god is doing these things god is at work god is the hero of this story and he is going to bring about his blessing his he's gonna he's gonna keep his promises from the garden where there was a snake. And I crushed the head of that snake. Abraham, I'm going to make all the families blessed through you. Isaac, same thing. Jacob, same thing. And now here you are. You're famine in the world. Don't worry. I'm, my promise is as sure as the sun coming up. And uh, you Now, you would think that Joseph ends up being a prominent character moving forward. And of course he is. But he is not in the line of Christ. Yeah. Um, you would think that Jesus would come through Joseph. The story focuses on Joseph, but what you realize is that God is going to work through this troubled brother, Judah, yeah, who is the youngest son of the first wife, not the loved wife, but Leah. 
and um, you still see that God has a plan, but it's not what you expect. Because I would expect that, well, Jesus is going to be a descendant of Joseph. Uh, Joseph's tribe is going to be a big deal in the future of Israel. But in fact, his tribe is split between his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And their tribal land is across the Jordan River from everybody else. So it's kind of on the outside and peripheral. Yeah. And Joseph's descendants really don't seem to play that major of a role moving forward. It is Judah who shows up. So as you mentioned earlier, with there seems to be this strange aside looking at Judah. He becomes this really important character, especially during the blessing in verse 49 when Jacob is at the end of his days and he goes and he blesses all of his sons. You have it pulled up right now what he says to Judah. Yeah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Which is a little bit cryptic, but this part is a little more straightforward. The scepter scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He's made the royal promise here. Mm-hmm. And and it's so amazing that this promise carries through to to our king himself. Where it's like what you just what you should just sit back and be amazed by is that God is working for the good of his people and he's gonna bring about his promises. And I'm just gonna end with this quote from from jo- from Jacob as he's making before he makes these blessings, um, <clears throat> he he begins one of the blessings uh, to Joseph's sons, and he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Like that's how he talks about God, who's mm-hmm. been his shepherd, which is a, which is kind of an amazing thing from somebody who's made a life out of being a shepherd, you know? Yeah. And uh, And so just like this, he's like, I've been shepherded. I've been taken care of, steered by God all the days of my life. And, uh, and that's what we see is like this shepherd, king, God, who's going to bring about his promises. And so I can't wait to keep unpacking the plot. Yeah. We, go from, uh, we go from a single guy leading his house, leaving his nation, his people. And we end with this family of Israel multiplying in Egypt, really thriving there. They have a place, they have land for all of their livestock. They all have estates essentially Mm -hmm. and they're powerful people and what we see is they multiply not just to a couple hundred but to a couple million people Mm -hmm. um, and actually become a pretty powerful force in Egypt which leads us to the events of Exodus here we go